Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Huddle Breakdown. Enda here alongside Alan Morrison, Celtic Fan Numbers. Hello. Hello, Enda. And Jico James is with us as always. James, how are you getting on? Good. Good to see you guys. Yeah, it's uh, been a while. It's a week and a half or so since we did a podcast. We've had a, a 4 0 thrashing from Leverkusen to digest, but we're going to park that. We're not going to really touch on that so much as uh, maybe a reference to how it affects, affected the draw against Aberdeen, which will be the main topic of conversation on today's podcast. We will be also talking about the refereeing situation. Now, I've always said that I'm not going to have a full podcast about refereeing, but I'm going to I'm going to go away from that for this this podcast because Alan and James, you both have been doing some work on that. So I will let you uh, talk about refereeing to, to your heart is content on this podcast. If you're watching or you're listening on uh, YouTube, hit the subscribe button below if you want to get more videos like this and do leave us a comment as well. We do get to some comments later on in the show. So we will be talking about the refereeing situation, the Ryan Porteous tackle and all this and how it ties into Scottish football. But we want to start with the Celtic win against Aberdeen. Celtic have finally won a game away from home. Kyogo Furuhashi getting the opening goal off the game. Lewis Ferguson equalizing for Aberdeen. And then João Philippe Jota winning with the winning goal. Notable talking points. I'll start. Near Beton comes into the midfield. And Celtic Twitter absolutely goes crazy for it. Not in a good way. <laughs> Alan, was this a successful move for Near Beton moving back into the midfield for the first time in what seems a decade? <laughs> That's not an easy question to answer, actually. Um, so listen, I, I, I'd kind of, you know, in terms of the, the, the main criticism that we've been building around Postacoglu, and again, it comes back to, even though people, I think, get and understand the context in which he's working, the limitations, the constraints of which he's had to operate, um, there's still a need to blame somebody when when the results don't go pe- the way that people want, and, and 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 there has to be some there has to be apparently some blame attached to the manager on this, and th- this tends to tend to crystallise around not having a plan B. Um, I don't think he's got the players to implement plan A, so maybe maybe, maybe plan B, uh, you know, is actually just a, a bit of a watered down version of of plan A, and 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 uh, you know, the only thing I could think of really myself, given the lack of players available, was to put in. Somebody like Bitton into the into the sort of sixth position, if we call it that, uh, on the basis that he's a natural to play in that. It might release McGregor a little bit, and then you've only you're only playing one of uh, Turnbull and Rogic as tens trying to 
operators box to box eights. So to me, it made a lot of sense, right? <laughs> uh, at least on paper. Um, in terms of how it actually panned out, it was a bit mixed, I would say. Um, you know, bit bit on as we saw against Leverkusen when he came. I think he came on as a sub and. He'd only been on the pitch 10 minutes. They were sprinting past him at great pace. Or I'm not sure it was great pace, but he just was very, very slow. And that might be part of the reason why they've been moving him back because his pace seems to have regressed uh, alarmingly. Not that he was ever quick in the first place. So I think, you know, that that that's a danger. But on the other hand, you know, we, we brought him in for his passing ability. Yeah, he was pretty steady in the passing, uh, you know, 94%, 45 passes didn't create anything, one secondary assist, but he did lead the team in pack passes. So in terms of breaking the lines from that central position, you know, he does that well. He completed 11 passes. It did it, it did lead to a change in shape, which meant McGregor pushed in beside him mainly to allow Turnbull to go further forward. But what that then allowed, meant was that we had three players behind uh, Kyogo uh, and we were bypassed quite easily. <laughs> and then you're, you're at McGregor and bit, a bit on. And the problem with that is there just isn't sufficient defensive capability there. Bitton didn't win a single challenge in the whole game. And that's just alarming for a number six, really. Uh, and he lost seven. McGregor was four and three, uh, which is okay for a midfielder. But, you know, again, McGregor uh, was pretty much blunted as, a, as an attacking threat. No key passes, um, you know, one secondary assist um, and, and 10 pack passes. So, so the midfield remains an absolute mess, in my view. Bitton, I think we should probably let him breathe into that role again. I do think it's probably a better option than McGregor, Turnbull, and Rogic. But, um, and, and it probably needs time. We can't, you know, he only played 70 odd minutes, Bitton. So I'm not going to, you know, we can't just discount that so, so quickly. But yeah, long story short for me was it's probably what I wanted. It didn't work terribly well. I don't know if, if it will ever work, but then I don't know what the right answer is because I don't see it, a combination that will work in midfield, and that's the, that's the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. James, did it work any better than the McCarthy, um, Rogic, and Turnbull trio? Well, having uh, McGregor back in there is huge, so I think it's a little bit of a rough comparison for McCarthy given that he didn't have McGregor to play next to him. Um, I think the one aspect... Uh, that I saw, which was interesting. And again, it's hard to attribute how much of this is due to Celtic and, you know, let's say Baton, Bitten's role or, or um, McGregor having played kind of as a pseudo dual pivot because he kind of got forward. You know what I mean? It was like a fluid thing. It wasn't, it wasn't like he was sitting there. He was being his normal McGregor-ish self, um, being dynamic and, and kind of switching between a six and an eight. Um, was that versus just how bad Aberdeen was. Um, so I I, th- I don't think Aberdeen had a open play chance of any consequence while um, Baton was in the game. Uh, you can check me on that, Alan. I, if, if it was, it was, you know, I, I know they had one shot that was kind of off of, it was like secondary phase off of a fixed, uh, a set piece, but the vast majority of their shots came off of corners and, and, they, and they didn't have a sorry, James. They didn't have a single chance with an XG of uh, even ten percent, even point point one, right? Not a single one. Yeah, and 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 I think their best one was, um, uh, I think it was one of the headers, um, not the not even the scoring one, <laughs> um, which was you know kind of a fluky off the shoulder lob job. Uh, so 
given the fact that they were able to bypass, as as Alan said, we were relatively robust in protecting kind of central areas on the pitch. They, they weren't able to cut us open. And that, that's been an issue. So again, I, I think we need more sample size to, to try and attribute how much of that may have been with the switch in midfield um, versus how bad, because this is not an isolation for Aberdeen. Aberdeen has had creative problems all season um, and particularly coming out of midfield. Uh, so this was not like a one-off thing where we can clearly say that we, you know, our, our tactics and player selection um, stifled this well, uh, well-oiled creation chance, uh, chance creation machine in, in Aberdeen. So, um, so I think that's yet to be determined. I think one of the, you know, fairly disappointing aspects is our, our chance creation was just really poor. Um, and, and this is where I'm a little more cautious about it because when I did kind of my post game um, thread and I looked at the underlying stats, it was freaky how similar a lot of them were to the Leverkusen game. Um, you know, how many times the ball entered the box, how many touches in the, in the box, um, you know, possession and progressive passes, relatively speaking. So the obvious disparity between Aberdeen and Leverkusen is, you know, player quality. They don't have, you know, Aberdeen doesn't have one of the best young talents in Europe, uh, an 18 year old playing as a number 10, like, like Leverkusen, um, do. So, you know, uh, the, the other thing that I was worried about going into the game and I did in my pregame thread was um, their two young fullbacks have been quite adept so far. Now, again, usual um, warning about sample size. So it was only seven games going into this, but they've been very good at defending oncoming dribblers and uh, two of the best in in the league, actually. On, on kind of like a percentage basis, like how many dribblers come at them and actually don't succeed at bypassing them. And I think we saw that Jota had a decent game um, overall, but it wasn't because he was taking Ramsey on one-on-one and, you know, scalping him like he did against Frimpong. Um, and I, I think so far this season, Ramsey's winning at like an 80% rate against dribblers. And Frimpong, when he was in the, the premiership was at like 50%. So it gives you an idea of, you know, as athletic and, and quick as Frimpong is, um, he was basically a coin flip defending against dribblers and Jota completely made him look yeah, like that yeah, uh, in that game. Whereas, you know, Ramsey to his credit was a tough matchup a little bit. So basically Jota has been at like, you know, 80% success rate so far at Celtic and dribbles and averaging over 10 a game. Um, that's dominant level. And including in Europe <laughs> against a team of Leverkusen's quality and Ramsey held him to, I think three out of five. Uh, and a Abada was, you know, um, not great. <laughs> Let's put it that way on, on the other side. So that really restricted our ability to create w- from wide areas, which um, with our issues that we've had centrally really left us with not creating a whole lot until that last chance <laughs> where we scored the winning goal. Uh, up until that point, it was pretty much a coin flip, low creation game across the board where you had kind of the beaton header is the one really good chance um, that, that didn't score for us. And then they had a couple of like half chances outside of the the two goals. And um, so, yeah, it, the, the win was obviously the most important thing. I think it's a question of how much 
of the underlying performance we can extrapolate in in a favorable sense and i i just i'm i'm still nervous about as alan said the composition of the midfield and what it means to get mcgregor out of that six and kind of the which is the lesser of two evils is it mcgregor at the six with uh the two the two tens playing eights or is it uh you know, putting somebody like Beton in and, and moving McGregor out of that spot. Yeah, it's an interesting one. We we didn't actually get to talk about the Leverkusen game, but yeah, Jota really give <laughs> Frimpong a horrid time down that left-hand side. And I guess uh, looking at some of the the final balls from Frimpong, he hasn't improved too much on that side of things, but he also did come out in the, out of the game as a winner of 4-0 and, and a team that's absolutely flying at the t- this. I think they're second in the Bundesliga now at the minute. So, I mean, it was clearly a, a decent enough move, move for Frimpong regardless. Um, I realize I'm going a little bit off script here, but I just want to ask it anyway, now that I mentioned Frimpong and his final ball. Uh, Alan, you probably have this to hand. Do you? Abada's final ball. I mean, his crossing just seems to be a bit off the scales at the minute. Is that something that you expect to... Uh, continue is that something that he has naturally that he is able to put put across these absolutely deadly balls that players are going to get onto or is this something that you you know we might see peter out a little bit over the course of the season i think he's one of these players that falls into the category of um you know it, it everything is going to be pretty high risk all the time he's he's, he's a player who doesn't have unlike jota who seems to be able to get on the ball a lot. Um, Abad is one of these who's, who's who doesn't. He did, for whatever reason he's, he's not on the ball nearly as much as, as Jota. I just and it's funny. This is, I didn't know you were going to ask that, but just today I was randomly thinking about um, how I could plot creativity versus um, as expressed by expected assists versus losing the ball in the final third, essentially. So players that lose the ball a lot, so they're clearly taking risks or they're just not very good at crossing or passing. But, uh, and then what's their creativity? And it, it was actually Ralston that kind of <laughs> inspired me to put that view together because uh, he's just technically not very good. But anyway, if you plot expected assists against number of times you lose possession in the final third, then in that upper right quadrant of that plotting, which is players with a very high expected assist rate and they give the ball away a lot, you've got a badder. So I, okay. I, I personally will accept that trade-off. You know, I don't mind him giving the ball away a lot if he's he's got expected assists of 0.6 a game, which is crazy. I mean, he's not going to be able to sustain that. I mean, you know, Messi just about maintains 0.4 expected assists per game and no one else can do that and has done that ever that I can see, you know, in terms of over season. So he's not going to maintain 0.6, but he he is he is there. So, whereas you know, um, Yota actually gives the ball away more. Yota loses possession more in the final third than Abada, um, and he's got uh, a slightly uh, less. He's got less of an expected assist so far. And yet, you know, Yota, you know, I think we'd all agree is settled in well. I've had him as man of the match for like three of the three of the games he's played so far, from based on what I've seen. So, interesting, uh, interesting question. And and as I say. At the moment, I'm okay with him because it's it's mm. risk reward at the moment. It's it's kind of tilting in his favour. Yeah, sorry, I I, I realised that I went completely uh, on a tangent <laughs> there. I probably should have stuck to the midfield, but we'll, we'll continue on while we're on Jota. While we're on the wingers, uh, Jota is obviously he's playing quite well at the minute. There might be a drop off at some stage when he you know 
I might pick up a niggle or just simply might not have a great game. A lot of people are on the fan boat that already that Celtic should be preparing the six million bid next year, and that uh, you know the the counterpoint to that has been that El Unisi would have cost less. So I I realize I'm asking you to do something that you don't usually do, but give me your honest opinion. Do you think he can maintain a level to which he will get to the standard of a player of El, El Unisi, or what are we expecting with Jota here? You going first, James? Go. Yeah, I'll, I'll go. <laughs> I, I I think his profile is one that is um, appealing. I, I think it. I I I you know it's premature and needless to have a strong sense right now or strong view because what I want to see is how he grows and develops within um, our system and under the, the management team. You know, is he going to improve? over his time here because as alan said there are some gaps in his game and there that was evident in his performance data prior to uh arriving at celtic so i i think that the the commonality between abada and, and jota that i've seen is one of decision making um so i think part of the you know for abada it's some of them are so erratic i mean i, I think it was pretty early in the game against aberdeen I mean, he cut inside, made a great move. I mean, he's athletic. He's a really athletic guy. He made this nice move inside. And then he just passed the ball to nobody. Like, it was it was like, I, I don't even know how he made the decision to make the pass. It was that bad. Um, because there was no Celtic player within, like, 10 or 15 yards of where he put it. And and I, that's kind of the erratic, maddening part of Abada is that he'll make some of these moves where he cuts inside. There was another one later where McGregor was making a beautiful run into the box and had Abada had his head up when he made his move, he could have seen him and, you know, played in a brilliant pass, was wide open, like, you know, seven, eight yards out for a great chance. And he, I think another issue with Abada is he puts his head down. You know, he, once he makes that move, a lot of times he's not, you know, on, on a swivel. And, and I think Jota is different where he's, he's a little more sophisticated and polished. And there's an age difference there too. Um, so I think he's 23 and uh, you know, so he's going to be more polished. He's coming out of the Benfica system. Um, but I want to see him grow within the system. And I want to see him continue to dominate because he should dominate at this level for, mm-hmm. for, for a player of that price range for Celtic, for a winger, they should be dominant. And so I want to see him dominate for an extended period of time and get better while he's dominating. And then, you know, as I, because I'm always n- nuanced, um, is is uh, want to see what the market conditions are, right? So that option has value. We have the option to buy at that price. That doesn't mean that it's going to be a good transaction come June, because if the transfer market goes into the absolute toilet again, um, then maybe we can get a comparable player for $4 million. You know what I mean? So it, it's it's only natural for, for fans to fall in love with players. And he certainly has a lot going for him to warrant that so far. Um, yeah. The fact that he's so, dropped Ed gorgeous, absolutely helps in his favor that fans are going to want to keep him at the club. He looks a, a bit like um, George Michael. Am I, am I right in saying that? Yeah. There's, like that's George. been, go- that's been going around. Yeah. 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 Alan, do you want to weigh in on this? Yeah. Listen, I, I, 
it's funny with it you mentioned about I mean Abada looks like to me a player that could make a really effective striker and Yota looks to me a player that could make a really effective number 10 but maybe that's to come in time I mean Yota hasn't played um seven full 90 minutes in a row uh, since he was playing for the Benfica B team and even then he wasn't playing twice a week so this has been a really intense period for him in terms of just sheer physical adjusting to the Scottish game the European competitions as well uh, he's had a lot of the ball so he's had a lot of decisions to make. So, you know, I think he stood up to that, given, given that context. I think he stood up to it pretty well. I mean, he's trending well below his expected goals. His expected goals is 0.43 a game, and he's actually 0.29. I don't know if he'll... I don't think he's one that looks to me like he's going to exceed his expected goals because I don't think, you know, that his shooting is necessarily his, his best skill. Uh, but he certainly, he certainly puts himself in good positions. And he's creating relatively well as well. So, and, and he gets into the box. If you look, he's, he's not top of any metric attacking wise. But if you added them all together, you, you've got a pretty good package there of attacking mm. threat. Now I'm talking about seven games. I wouldn't normally go public with this until we'd done my nine games, uh, 900, 900 minutes or ten games. So, um, I'll, I'll hold fire on doing a Jota article. But what, I'm, I'm really happy with what I've seen from him. And, and not just not just the attacking threat, and and the fact that he's he, he's brave, he wants the ball all the time. It's it's just his attitude and his his tracking back, you know, his robustness, etc. You know, I think he's a pretty good all round player. He looks like he's 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 been brought up in a good environment and been you know Benfica's you know well renowned for bringing up young players, and he looks like he's he's, he's been well-schooled in that sense, but he looks like he's got a great attitude as well, so all of those kind of other factors, but yeah, great package, I think, on on, on, on certainly so good so, you know, so, good mm. so far. Interestingly, the Portuguese league has overtaken the uh, Ligue 1 in France yeah, as the right. number five league in Europe as well, so that will impact the amount that Celtic are charged at the end of the day if it eventually comes to the stage where Celtic want to uh, pull the trigger on that Jota transfer and make him full-time. So it will be interesting to see. I, I, I'm absolutely holding fire, especially on a young winger. I mean, you can have five amazing games as a winger and then be completely quiet for, for 10 games in a row. So hopefully he can keep this run of form going and uh, pop up a couple of goals as well. Just to finish off on the Aberdeen game and something that I should have done earlier, let's, talk, let's finish off on the midfield. Um, so we've seen a midfield of... McGregor, Turnbull, Rogic. We've seen a midfield of McCarthy, Rogic, Turnbull. We've seen a midfield now of Beaton, Cal McGregor, and uh, David Turnbull. In terms of the best combinations, in terms of Cal McGregor's impact, what he can do, um, are we feeling now that he is better as a number eight to push him on a little bit and play that security blanket, even against sides like, say, Dundee or uh, St. Marin, who are essentially you're, you're not going to need per se, a centre defensive midfielder, but um, I, I, certainly against the bigger sides, are we sticking to Cal McGregor now as a number eight or is he dropping back into that position? What are we feeling? I, I've uh, been a strong advocate pretty consistently for him being a six. And I, I, think, um, I, I think that the case for McGregor being you know, kind of quote unquote good going forward or better going forward is overstated relative to his actual performance data. <laughs> um, so I'm not saying he's not good going forward. I'm just saying that it's my view that people undervalue how important what he does in that six role is. And I, and I think we, um, 
we've seen that when he gets man marked out of the game, uh, which teams have done. Uh, uh, Alkmaar did that. Rangers did it. Uh, interesting. Leverkusen didn't um, man mark R six. Uh, so, and, and it, the game was a little bit op- more open, shall we say, for us in that regard. Where it was easier for us to kind of break their press as a result because of how valuable McGregor is in doing that. Um, so I, I think that my preference is conditional. It's situational. So, um, you know, I always go back to my Jenga tower metaphor is with Montgomery at left back and Ralston at right back. That is not a great back four or even five when you throw hard in to be beating the press. And so I think that's why, you know, you saw both Biton and McGregor dropping into that space to help with buildup. Um, and I think that makes sense. Whereas if you had um, Taylor back and Juranovic in at fullback, you probably don't need two, two pivots or another, you know, eight dropping deep where you could just have McGregor. Um, and then I think you can get away a little bit better with, with Turnbull and, and Rogic as, as the eights. Um where I don't think there's a good answer is against higher quality competition. I, I just don't think there's a good answer. It's it's basically, you know, uh, pr- pray that whatever you pick <laughs> ends up being a good matchup on the day relative to how a, a Leverkusen decides to go at you. Um, so, you know, in, in games against Dundee uh, at home or, you know, even at St. Mirren, given how big their pitch is, my preference is play McGregor at the six and and um, and, and Rogic and Turnbull at the eights. Alan, do you have a preference either way? Uh, uh, I'm sadly going to have to completely agree with that. Um, but but against a better team, that three is just so open, and then you're you're on to a defense that, as you say, with the fullback situations and the central midfield situation are the, the key weaknesses in the team at the moment. In terms of just sheer quality and suitability of the roles that are being asked to play, and um, both ball progression and stopping the opposition, sadly as well. Um, like I say, you know, when you play Rogic, McGregor, and Turnbull, you've got a good chance uh, if, if if the team's in form and playing at a good pace um, of, of one of one of the six nil victories that we've seen. That that's how attacking that team is. But again, against a better team, uh, I'm I'm going to have to agree with James. I don't see. I don't see a good option. I can't think of a good option or even a competent option, actually. Yeah. You know, if McCarthy gets up to match fitness, maybe a fit and firing McCarthy is different to how what we've seen so far. But at the moment, you know, the, the, what I've seen is a player who gives the ball away more than any other player in the team. He's got the most incomplete passes of any player in the squad, and that's your number six. That's your defensive midfielder uh, for, for very low challenge, you know, very low defensive action rate. And zero creativity. That's not a good combination. So yeah. he's going to have to step up and get as much fitness and contribute more than that to justify a place. Um, and you, then you've got Bitton, who possibly part of the reason Bitton's been moved back is because his his, his knee condition won't <laughs> won't stand up to playing midfield week in week out. Certainly two games a week. And you know McGregor on his own can't stem the tide of, of, of a Leverkusen or a Betis type attack. So there's just no no good options. I'm afraid I can't. I can't manufacture one in my head. One, well, yeah. I'll leave, I will. I will leave on a positive. <laughs> this, this is kind of positive, which is one of the one of the good things to come out of the game 
is that what happened uh, on, on 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 Sunday uh, with was that you know Rogic came on off the bench and played a defence splitting pass to put Montgomery in to set up the winning goal. And that's how Celtic, with their wage differential, should be winning games. They should have players like Rogic coming onto the pitch and changing the game. Um, and that that was at least an encouraging sign that some depth in the squad was returning, some mist is clearing in that regard. Um, and just I'll leave leave with one one last comment on the game, which is that you know uh, James mentioned a few times the struggles that Aberdeen have had from a creativity perspective. Guess who was their most creative player? <laughs> Scott Brown. Scott Brown. Absolutely yeah. by a mile, by a mile. I mean nine nine pack passes. Um, you know the highest pass packing rate, and the most um, you know the player getting on the end of it more often than not. Johnny Hayes. So, I mean, the fact that Hayes and Brown are arguably their two, you know, best, most effective yeah. players gives you some indication of you know where Celtic should be you know, beating that team, um, and and hopefully those who clamour for Celtic to sign the lad Ferguson from Aberdeen, I'm sorry, but you, you know, if you really believe that, you just need to look at the data. It's just not that would not enhance the squad in any shape or form. Absolute Celtic Daz heaven there, Scott Brown and Johnny Hayes firing away for Aberdeen. Uh, yeah, the uh, the issue with the midfield is an interesting one because, I mean, the James McCarthy thing, fans clearly are not taking to James McCarthy. Then people are saying, okay, you need to change. He's not working with David Turnbull and Tom Rogic, and then he brings in Beaton, and people are like, what are you bringing in Beaton for? He's like, well, those are my options. That's those are your options. Got. Like, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to play, yeah. I don't know, like Kyogo in midfield or something? But yeah, now I, I, the positive impact in it, it's one of the weird intangible things that we can't measure is I, I can't imagine the feeling in the Celtic dressing room after that win because after defeat, after defeat, after defeat away from home, to drag yourself to a win in a dramatic fashion later on, Mentally, that is going to be a massive boost for the, the Celtic changing room and it will hopefully uh, build some momentum as well. So hopefully that will carry on into the next few games. But I mean, the this, this schedule of the Europa League games, I mean, it's it's really tough going into the league games and then get, getting some momentum and then getting absolutely battered by Bayer Leverkusen and then in midweek. So um, it's definitely not something that I envy the, the Celtic dressing room at the minute. Let's move on to the other thing that has been dominating in Scottish football over the weekend, and that is referees. So the Hibs Rangers game is where this conversation really comes from. It's where it stems from. Uh, Ryan Porteous has been given a two-game ban for his tackle on Joe Rebo against Rangers. Hibs were 1-0 up in the game against Rangers when Porteous was sent off. 30 minutes into the game for a tackle on Joe Rebo, if you watch the replay, he lunges, yes, he's off his feet, yes, but he does get the ball as well. Doesn't really get, I don't think he gets any of Joe Rebo in the end. And he's sent off by Nick Walsh, who was the referee in the game. Scottish refereeing, we've spoken about it in passing before. It is pretty, pretty, pretty awful and borderline horrific. <laughs> Alan, you, you've done quite a bit of work over the course of the week. I, the article that you've written on your website, Celtic by Numbers, is essentially tracking how quote-unquote honest mistakes can uh, build up and uh, what impact they have on the, the swing of games. So do you want to give us the sort of the run-through of the pace and what the idea was behind it, and then we can sort of pick it apart? Yeah, sure. So listen, this is a topic, and I'm interested. I'm genuinely interested. I know, you, I know you two guys 
I've been reluctant to talk about refereeing in any depth mm -hmm. before. So I'm really interested in your perspectives, okay? Because I'm quite keen to talk about it, but I've not really found the the way of talking about it that's going to be is listen. This is a really difficult subject because it's, it's there's multi layered, right? You you could write a very in depth socioeconomic article on um, you know culture and politics and sociology in Scotland and, and and all sorts of things, right? You really could, and and you need to do you do need to look at this contextually. But what I'm trying to do is make this as simple as I can, and what my goal really is is to try and make it as you know as subjective as I can, and that's difficult because I am biased. I'm a Celtic supporter, right? I will hold up my hand when I watch a game. You know, I, I will see incidents and I will react in a way that is biased. I, I you know, I, when I see um, Ryan Portis's tackle for the first time unvarnished, I think, oh, it's against the, you know, it's against the rival. Therefore, you know, it's it shouldn't be a sending off. You know, that's my instinct. That's, that's my and if anybody watching this who's a passionate football fan, you know, claims that they, they don't think that way, then then I think they're lying to themselves, right? So this is a really difficult thing to talk about. We see you see it yourself when you try and engage online when people post up decisions and and they freeze frame things like just at the moment someone looks like they're about to kill somebody and and that's like oh this is outrageous and you get all of this and it's and and you can't and and and, and what I said in my article is is you know three things really one is we're all biased and you know we are all biased <laughs> second second thing is nobody changes their mind <laughs> it doesn't matter what evidence you present. Nobody changes their mind. And thirdly, and, and probably most crucially, is the vast majority of football fans don't know the laws of the game, right? The laws of the game are quite voluminous, and very few people take the trouble to actually read them, never mind memorise them and understand them and know how to apply them in, 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 the, in the context of a fast-moving, dynamic sport like football. So for all those reasons, it's a very difficult thing to do. So what I've endeavoured to do is, is to uh, is, is to try and kind of break through that a little bit. And I'm not saying this is perfect, but it's at least an attempt to try and make it a little bit more subjective. And what, what I've put on my site today is really just a framework, which sounds very grand and posh. Really, it's just bringing together three things to try and assess what I called honest mistakes. Listen, that's a hoary old joke, right? When honest mistakes is the name given when, when when Celtic fans or fans of other clubs, you know, roared in disapproval about certain decisions, and then they'd always wheel out some ex-referee from the SFA to say to defend the referee and say, oh, you know, even, even if even if it was the wrong decision, it's just an honest mistake. So honest mistakes is like a euphemism for a referee making making a big decision incorrectly, calling it in a game. Um, and you know, so so just to come back to how, how can we, how can we sort of look at this in a fresh way? So the first thing is, is my instinct is as I've said before, because I'm biased, as we all are, because I don't know the laws of the game and I've never refereed in my life. Um, I, I've asked somebody who, do, who 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 can say yes to all those things, as in they're not biased. <laughs> they 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 have refereed and they do know the laws of the game. And, and they've got absolutely no skin in the game as far as Scottish football is concerned. I live in England. Uh, I live in South Yorkshire, um, big football area. I've got a big network of people that are involved in football. So I've, I've managed to get hold of somebody who's a, a very experienced referee who's agreed to essentially give me the verdict on uh, incidents in games. Uh, this person is a Sheffield Wednesday fan, has no interest in Scottish football. So expert opinion, unbiased. Yeah, so you've so, got your own Dermot Gallagher, essentially. Indeed, indeed. Second, <laughs> second of all is... Is really understanding, you know, the nature of um, honest mistakes is generally it's a big decision. What's a big decision? It's usually either a goal that's either been allowed and shouldn't have been 
disallowed what it should have been given, or it's a sending off again that has been given or not given, etc. Um, the controversial decisions change the game quite fundamentally. And what I, what I did is a bit of research, found out that really sendings off do impact games quite dramatically. And if we can actually put a, an expected points um, value as the impact of that sending off. So, for example, if a, if a player gets sent off for, a, for the away team, it actually increases the home team's number of points they would, on average, achieve from that game by about 0.35 points. This is an average, right? So, so you can put a value on it. And, and similarly with goals, I've already got a framework which gives a value to a goal depending on the, the game state, i.e. what's the score at the time, and the minute of the game. So if you score a goal and it's nil-nil and you score a goal in the 90th minute, you get a massive expected points value for that because you've effectively gone from expected to get one point up to probably going to get three. So it's like a 1.8 mm-hmm. or 1.9 because there's always time to potentially get an equaliser. Whereas you know if you score the fifth goal in a 5-nil in a romp, in the 90th minute, it, it does absolutely nothing to impact the the way that the game's going. So you get virtually zero expected points for that. So we've got a framework where we can apply what the impact for goals disallowed or not or not, and we've got a, a framework for applying expected points for sendings off, and we've got somebody, as I say, who's unbiased and got no skin in the game in terms of Scottish football. So I'm, what I'm hoping is bring those three things together. What I've done is I've gone through all of the major incidents that I'm aware of, and, 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 and you know, apologies to Hibs and Hearts fans, I don't watch all Scottish football matches, I don't even watch the highlights, so it's just ignorance on my part if I haven't got all the big decisions from their games, for example. Um, and, 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 I've, and, I've, and this person has given me their verdict with full explanation tied back to the laws of the game as to why the decision that the referee gave was either correct or incorrect. And I'll be putting that up okay. over the next couple of days. And okay. a little spoiler, Sounds... a little teaser for you, okay? And and, and a lot of a, 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 quite a few of the decisions that he came back with, I didn't like. Well, poor me. <laughs> but 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 I but I completely when he when he when he put his reasoning out, I completely understood it, and and it made sense to me. And I thought, well, fair enough. So so listen, this isn't my opinion. This isn't going to be my opinion. This is going to be an expert's opinion, and I would just simply report it. Uh, Four people on that hips game, the two the two incidents that were called out there was in the in the fifth minute a Lundstrom tackle on Doig, and then the thirtieth minute the Porteous challenge on Aribo. And um, the expert view is that the referee was correct on both on both of those calls. That the the, the Lundstrom tackle, although he is um, he he is off the ground, his foot goes down onto the ball in a downward motion. Um, and he cleanly wins the ball, and and actually no foul or, or even card was given. With Porteous, his, his his leg is outstretched; he's out of control. He, he actually goes over the top of the ball uh, and could have caused uh, severe damage potentially. And the fact that he didn't actually get a lot of contact on Arriba was lucky, <laughs> but not mm. not material to the actual outcome of the of the offence. So that he upheld that red card. So that's a little teaser for you. Um, so this isn't going to be a Celtic, you know, justifying paranoia, blah, blah, blah. This is going to be a proper look at all these decisions uh, using a little bit of science and research, uh, and hopefully we can cut through some of the crap in terms of discussing these uh, incidents. Mm. Sounds really interesting. Can't wait to read it on Celtic by Numbers. The Porteous red card... It's, it's like it is a red card. Like Let's, yeah. let's, be, let's be honest here. I, I, the grainy footage at the start, I was like... Oh, 
maybe maybe a bit harsh, but having seen the the actual footage, like if he collides, he's taking Joe Rebo's knee out, and that's an absolute stonewall red card. I think it's a bit harsh to give him a two two game ban. I would say the two game ban was um, probably upheld because they try to go against the the SFA on it, and uh, generally that's what happens if you if you feel on your uh, on your appeals, I, I think the key issue that most people would have um, is if you look at the treatment of other players from Rangers and tackles that they put in and uh, whether or not they have been treated in the same manner. And one thing that keeps coming up time and time again, James, I know you've done some research on the European refereeing and how that works compared to the Scot- Scottish, is that if you look at Rangers cards, and fouls and red cards in Scotland and compare it to what happens to them in Europe, there's a little bit of a question mark over it. Yeah, so let me put some context behind that because I, I, I think, um, so what I what I did is try to look for um, signals like I always do. I mean, I, I try to look at a bunch of stuff, benchmark it to peer group. You know, for example, I went and looked at... Uh, Dynamo Zagreb. I looked at Ajax. I looked at Salzburg. I looked at um, teams that are involved both domestically and dominant domestically, uh, and that then um, compete in Europe at a decent level. And what is what does their disparity look like? Meaning that are they are they officiated differently? And also look at okay, well, what kind of league are they in? Are there, is there a league that calls a lot of fouls, or does it not call a lot of fouls? Um, I also looked at Angela's playing style, which is different, um, meaning that intuitively you wouldn't think that a team that has 70% possession uh, would foul more than a team or even close to the same amount as the team that only has 30% of the possession. Well, if you actually look at his track record in Japan, it's about parity, even though he's had over 70% possession. Well, why is that? Well, because his his team's press like crazy and, uh, and counter press like crazy. Um, and, and that results in my mind, logically, you know, so what I'm looking for is logical patterns to explain some of this stuff. And what, what I felt like was, was fairly clear is that there's reasonable explanations for the fouling rate, right? So overall on average, um, and even on the game on, you know, I, I don't normally do this, but just because of how many people were talking about it, I was like, you know what, I'm going to rewatch the game, but instead of doing it the way I usually do it, I'm just going to focus on fouls. And I took notes on every single freaking foul that was called. Okay. And I have to. You did. All right. So, you know, and again, (laughs) right. And like Alan, I mean, I'm not an expert on the rules, but uh, number one, I think what most people don't realize, and I didn't, you know, as someone who looks at this data all the time, um, handballs are considered fouls in most of the data providers. Right. So the 27 fouls that were called against Celtic, two of them were Kyogo handballs. Were they both handballs? I don't know. One of them definitely looked like it. Couldn't tell from the other camera angle. Um, Out of the other 25, I would say that there was only four that I thought were kind of, you know, like, could you call them soft? And, And in my judgment, two of them were like, you know, you blew on the guy and he fell over kind of calls. Uh, The other two were like, well, most refs are probably going to give that. Um, So I think, reasonably, even if you fudge me one or two there, you're talking about 18, 19 fouls for Celtic that were legit fouls. 
like most of the fouls that we committed probably should have been called by any referee. I mean, Bitton flying through people and Jota, you know, karate kicking a guy. I mean, and um, Ralston, who very easily could have had a yellow card called on him uh, early in the game. And I, I'll get back to that on Madden because he has a pat. I think I think Madden's a bad ref. I think a big problem with Madden is he doesn't call the game right early. And his games always get out of hand because of it. Or I shouldn't say always, but regularly. And then he makes up with, you know, it's this game where, well, I'm not going to call yellow early because I don't want to impact the game maybe. And then, you know, somebody else gets a yellow later and it plays catch up on something that shouldn't even be a yellow, that kind of nonsense. Um, but I, I benchmarked it then and I look back and, you know, 18, 19 fouls is a lot for Celtic uh, in a game. But I don't think, you know, we, we got screwed on foul calls that game abnormally high i mean you know you can't just say it was a lot of fouls without saying well were they actually fouls and i think you know maybe you could argue three or four of them but even above and beyond that that's crazy um so i think there's there's context that's very important in, in benchmarking and measuring these things the one thing that i wasn't able well let me go back the other thing is that celtic have not engaged in a lot of duels domestically relative to what they have in europe the other major delta that I found is that the ball in play amount for Celtic in Europe is about the same as it has been domestically, but Rangers have had about a 12% difference, meaning that the ball's only been in play in Rangers games about 50 minutes a game on average. Celtics have been about 55 to 56 in both Europe and domestically. In Europe, Rangers have had the ball in play about 56 minutes. So ball in play more, more players engaged, more fouls. So when I kind of packaged all this stuff up together and I look at, okay, reasonably, if I make adjustments off of all of these kind of relationships, I didn't see anything that was too abnormal. Again, realizing we're not talking about a huge sample size here either. You have to take that under consideration. Um, other than the yellow card granting of Rangers opponents so far domestically, which is, it's just a large number. Now I haven't gone back and audited every single play. Um, you know, if I cared that much about this, I would, <laughs> um, I've already probably put too much time into this based off of my interest in the topic, but, uh, they were something like 26% of their fouls against Rangers players have been given yellow cards. Now maybe those are legitimate. I mean, maybe they should have been yellow cards. Um, I don't know. But that that stuck out. That was way out of sample. That that was something that is, is unusual. That if I was like someone who was grading referees and I was looking for like holding a referees accountable, I would want to review that. Like that's a, a statistical red flag. All the other re- things that look like red flags, I could come. I kind of did some you know deep dive and figured out. Okay, well this might be a good explanation. That might be a good explanation. Like at least reasonable explanations. I'm not saying there isn't one for that. I couldn't figure one out. Maybe someone smarter can do it. Um, or maybe they just have had, you know, weird number of yellow cards against them in a short term, you know, in, in seven or eight games, which is also possible. Um, so that's the work I did. Yeah. It's uh referee is always a difficult one for me because I often live off the idea of the simplest explanation is probably the right one. And, uh, I mean, look, refereeing is a completely subjective thing. They are human beings at the end of the day. They do bring bias into the game, regardless of uh, what team they're refereeing, what their upbringing was, and things like that. So while I do think that is a factor, 
And I definitely don't discount that as potentially, especially in a, a country like Scotland, where it is, you know, it's it's Celtic and it's Rangers. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, outside factors that go into who you support and what your demographic is and all that there. I do believe that the simplest explanation of the standard of referees in Scotland is just not that good, is more believable than there is a grand conspiracy uh, to help Rangers win the league uh, by having loads of referees involved in it who none of them have whistleblowed on anybody in the past or any have done in uh, the current game. So I, I the main reason, Alan, that I don't really like talking about referees all that much is that it's one of these completely uncontrollable things that, you know, okay, so was it a penalty? Was it not a penalty? Well, it was given a penalty, so it was a penalty. So, you know, that's that's where I kind of stand on referees. It's hard to know where you can actually bring the subject, but um, any final thoughts on this, Alan? Yeah, so so listen, I, again, I, I think you're right in the sense of I wouldn't claim to be any sort of, you know, um, Organized conspiracy um, would just be yeah would be would be pretty pretty nuts. But you can't divorce the people from the context of the culture of the organization that they work for mm. and where they've also come from. You know, Scottish football. Um, if you think about, as you rightly said, it's a it's it's a very partisan. As I listen, all football fans will say they're the most passionate, but it's a particularly partisan and football-focused country, where for where if we ignore the people that don't care about football, about a third of them will support Celtic, about a third of them will support uh, the Rangers, and about a third of them will support the other teams broadly, right? So if you're drawing your um, referees from a, from a population that has that kind of profile, to me, um, you'd want to be quite transparent about people's backgrounds and, and allegiances to really m- maximize or minimize the risk of anybody claiming that there are any biases and there's no and there appears to be no attempt to do that and in fact you know the, there's a huge proportion of the referees come from the Lanarkshire, Lanarkshire FA um which which is a Lanarkshire is just south of Glasgow right so um it's, it's the west coast of Glasgow and those those referees tend to be the ones that get the big games, the, the cup finals and the semi-finals and the the, uh, the derby matches, right? So so immediately there's some there's a few flags, red flags there for me. If I was a a risk person or an auditor looking at how could we um, ensure full transparency and accountability. The second thing is you just have to look at the way that the whole refereeing service is operated. Now again, I'm not talking about. Um, I'm not looking at this through the lens of even culture at this stage. I'm talking about this through the lens of if if I was auditing a service provision company or I was um, looking at risk and risk management within the SFA in relation to the service of provisioning referees, I'd want to understand. I'd want to see transparency around what's the what's what's the criteria for recruitment? How are they being trained? How are they being assigned to games? How are they being um, performance assessed in those games and how are, how are they being promoted how is the selection made for who makes the fifa list who makes the uh, cup final etc 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 and the, the all of these things to me lack, completely lack transparency and, and they completely lack um a separation of duty between the people who have a have, a, have, a, have management decisions over all those steps and um the, the provision of a service to the service provider and no ability for the recipient of the service, the football clubs, to be able to, you know, 
have transparency over the service that they're actually given. And that, that's just not how you run things. It's just not how you run things in an open and transparent uh, way. So that's my issue. And, and, and what, that, what that produces in people's minds is doubt, okay? And, and, and once you've got doubt, you, you, you lack trust. And where you lack mm -hmm. trust, then people will form their own opinions as to why certain things didn't go the way they wanted them to. So for me, if you had that transparency, then you would remove, so you'd, you'd build that trust and you'd in increase confidence in, in the outcomes that you're getting. So back to your original question, which was about number of red cards. So to me, red cards are such a rare event as are penalties that you cannot form an opinion because the sample size is too small. You have to look at every single individual case, which is what I'm doing, and come to a decision. Was that the right decision? Was that the correct decision? And then you'd look at the pattern of, of the wrong decisions and the right decisions to see if there is any any pattern in there. I'm fully expecting at the end of the season that there'll be zero, you know, net zero expected points benefit for Celtic and expecting and zero expected points benefit for for the Rangers. That would that would that would indicate a fairly. If to your point, if the refereeing is incompetent and poor, then it's random and everyone gets affected yeah. equally. Right. I should say that I don't think it's I don't I don't say that it's fully I, I am accepting that there absolutely is human bias involved in this. But I largely think the referee in, in, in general is just piss poor, to be honest. But it's poor because the you know, what is the criteria for getting on? The fact that Willie Collins, mm. a, a FIFA referee, means he's doing the he's doing something right. But we don't think it's refereeing football matches. So what is it? You know, I think I think to get a fair idea of where I guess the general idea around refereeing is in Scotland is take Celtic and Rangers out of the league, and then see what happens. See what the other fans think. You know, if if these referees are specifically not involved in any of the Celtic and Rangers games. Are they still bad referees? My answer yeah. would probably be yes. Well, that's that's where I, I, I yeah, I, I forget which game it was. It was um, maybe Aberdeen, Dundee United. I don't know. It was, it was a non-Celtic uh, or Rangers game that I watched that Madden was refereeing earlier in the season, and it was a debacle. I mean, it, it, was, it was a train wreck. Uh, what he was letting go and the inconsistency. So, you know, to, to your point, um, and uh, I think that uh, the, the 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 supporters of other clubs are probably victims of this as much as as everyone else. Um, and anyone who's watching some of these guys. And again, I, I don't I actually have like just personally, my personal bias is I have tremendous empathy for officiating. I've tried it myself. It is a thankless, horrible, difficult job. Um, and I've done it in several sports, tried to at the youth level and that kind of thing. And it, it's just, it's a really hard thing to do well. And I, so I think the vast majority of people are doing it to the best that they can try, particularly at the youth level. I mean, all these parents screaming at refs at, you know, under 10 year old football games is insane. Um, and, you know, it, it's just, even when you get up to a certain level, it's, it's a hard thing to be doing to Alan's point earlier, the, the speed with which these players are moving and, um, you know, it, 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 it and, the cult, I, I always come back to the, the cultural issues, not necessarily directly with what Alan's referencing, but I think the football and culture in Scotland, you know, I've talked about this before, which is the number of fouls called in games is way too low relative to what it probably should be given the physicality of the league and, you know, how the premiership, you know, 
and, and versus League Two has about the same number of fouls called, which is crazy. Um, so I, I think there's a there are fundamental issues here all the way up and down through kind of the the culture and the chain, um, and it's just a really hard job too. So I, I I try to start from a good faith charitable perspective, and then look at competency next, and then if I can you know if there's anything else left, absolutely there's always the bias issue. Um, which can work both ways. You know, a, a good faith person who knows they have a bias can overcompensate the other way. You know, I, I don't want to be seen. I'm a Celtic supporter. I don't want to be seen as a Celtic supporter. So I'm going to give, you know, a subconscious thing that I probably shouldn't give. You know, so these, these things are not simple. Um, and and it's really hard to measure. So I think it's really cool that Alan's doing something like he's doing because, you know, this is what I, again, to Alan's point, we don't know what the transparency is. We, I'm sure there's some kind of grading system going on. There should be. I mean, any, any kind of responsible professional organization is going to have uh, grading of officiating. Um, you know, how much is are these people making it to FIFA because of merit-based grading? Or is it seniority? I would be not surprised if it's seniority-based, uh, given the culture. Um, so, you know, the, these are all factors that if there was more transparency it would make things a lot easier. Yeah. Sorry, Alan, I interrupted you. Do you want to finish your point? No, sorry. I can't, I can't even remember what I was going to say. <laughs> Listen, I, I, you know, I think, I think you're, I think you're, you both make good points. There is a, we're trying to be reasonable and balanced as we can. We're all Celtic supporters, so it's difficult. And I, I think we have, to be, and we have to be honest about that. This is, it is a, it is a complex thing. I think the, um, the culture is, is a very, difficult thing to get into we we know from things like the mcleish report that was written 10 years ago um and, and, and other instances have happened that the culture of the sfa is, is probably problematic let's be honest about that and that is the op- that is the culture in which um the, the the referees operate within like i say that's why rather than approach that by saying oh you support rangers you support blah, 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 it's just that this kind of thing gets you nowhere i would approach it from the perspective of if you're offering a service and that service is refereeing, what standards would I expect from that service and what oversight and governance and transparency would I expect over that service to assure me that that's the best, I'm getting the best service because I'm paying, because I'm paying you for this, right? You know, the clubs yeah. are paying for these, for these people, right? So you, you assure me you've got all the checks and balances in to make sure that you're giving me the best. And that means unbiased as best as possible service you can possibly give me. And if all that's in place, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy, and unlike James, I'm, I'll take that in good faith. Yeah, I will be very surprised if we actually do get any of that, but we carry on regardless in the uh, world of Scottish football. You were listening to the Huddle Breakdown. If you want to follow us, you can get us on Twitter at Huddle Breakdown, or you can subscribe to the Spotify, which is the Huddle Breakdown, or watch us in the uh, Breakdown Inc. YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to by hitting the uh, subscribe button below and get notified every time a video goes live. We'll be back again next week um, with another podcast. James, Alan, thanks very much. Yeah, Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, All right, you. cheers. We'll chat to you later. Good luck. Good. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 